Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. And welcome to Half Pints, the bonus content we make specially to thank supporters of the Irish Passport podcast on Patreon. In this episode, I interview Caelan Hogan, author of Republic of Shame, stories from Ireland's institutions for fallen women. Hogan's book investigates the network of institutions that were run by the Catholic Church, working in concert with the Irish state during the 20th century. These ranged from Magdalene laundries where women and girls who were deemed to be in some way troublesome were put into servitude, to mother and baby homes where unmarried mothers went to give birth in secret and where their babies were taken into adoption. This was part of a large network of different kinds of institutions where people were incarcerated. From prisons to youth detention centres, psychiatric institutions and the industrial schools that were renowned for their cruelty. In the course of our conversation, Hogan told me a striking statistic. In 1951, despite the many thousands of people who were emigrating at the time, more than 1% of the Irish population was incarcerated in these institutions. That's a figure from Coercive Confinement by Owen O'Sullivan and Ian O'Donnell. We have a copy of Caelan's book to give away. To enter the competition for it, simply share this episode on social media. Don't forget to tag us in your post so we know to put your name into the draw. Let's hear from Caelan Hogan. My name is Caelan Hogan. I'm from Dublin and I'm a freelance journalist. So what was the genesis of your book, Republic of Shame? So I started writing this in 2017 and it was a really potent time um, for these issues. Obviously, we were looking ahead to the repeal campaign. It was a few years after marriage equality and there was this national conversation going on about the shame that had been imposed on pregnant women in Ireland, the experience of women in Ireland, and that legacy of of the Catholic religious-run institutions, also Protestant-run, but mainly Catholic. And so the test excavation at Tum, um, the report on that had been released. This is of the babies and children's remains that were found in a septic tank in Galway. That Hmm. were found in Tum, Hmm. and... Um, so th- it was confirmed after that excavation that there were significant human remains found on the grounds of the Bon Secours Institution uh, dating back to that time. This was a story that broke in 2014. I was actually abroad um, reporting in DC and so I was back home in 2017 and you know it was a national conversation that was happening that I really wanted to understand better. And I started speaking with people who had first-hand experience of these institutions. And as soon as I did start speaking with people, I realized how recent this supposed history was, how many lives were still being impacted by it, the fact that people were still searching for their own birth information. Some mothers were searching for where their own children were buried, still didn't know. And I 
it was very close to home. I realized that there was an institution around the corner from my house that had been a holding center for children awaiting adoption, where hundreds of children had been adopted to the US from, sent abroad to be adopted, where actually the uh, someone I knew personally had had a child there. She had had to go visit her child there uh, before her son was taken for adoption. And I found out that there were friends of mine who had been affected, you know, people with aunts and cousins. Everyone I spoke to had a story. I, I don't know that there's anyone in Ireland who isn't affected in some way by this, who doesn't know someone, whether they know it or not, who has in some way been affected by these institutions. So when we're talking about institutions, can you just sketch out the kind of infrastructure of different kinds of institutions that we're talking about and what function they provided? Right, so this was something I, I realised very quickly when I, I started um, looking into this issue was how wide the system was and how interconnected. So I sort of tended to conflate mother and baby homes with Magdalene Laundries, but they were separate institutions. The mother and baby homes were set up in the first years of the Free State, often in, in former workhouses as institutions where um, women who were pregnant outside of wedlock, as they used to say, would be sent to give birth in secret. They would often stay there for a few years, made to work before and after they gave birth, up until the moment of birth sometimes. They, their names were changed when they went into these institutions. They weren't allowed to speak to each other. And often their children were taken for adoption. Um, sometimes their families had to pay for them to leave the institution and continue to pay for their child to be there. And, you know, the question of how free the consent that was given for those adoptions is very questionable because of the very deep stigma at the time and the pressure that was put on women um, to to make choose that option. Uh, so whether that choice was free is very questionable. The Magdalene Laundries were institutions that had been operating from, you know, the 1700s in Ireland, so for a very long time. And women were sent there for a number of reasons, so-called fallen women, that terrible term, but it was often people who might have been born in the mother and baby homes and gone through industrial schools, which was another wide system of institutions where children were sort of criminalized and sent and exploited and abuse was very endemic and so women unmarried mothers that term that was used about women they were often sent to the Magdalene laundries also girls who might have been sexually abused at home and sometimes were sent as a way to sort of in some strange way an idea to protect them but this was an idea of getting rid of women who were difficult and, and sort of, it was a form of incarceration. Some stayed in these institutions until they died. And um, so a whole network of institutions where women were put away and sort of out of sight uh, through no real fault of their own, uh, other than sometimes being pregnant. So you've got this kind of infrastructure of different institutions which are being used to incarcerate different kinds of people there's young people children some of them born to married parents but who might be perhaps poor or perceived to be misbehaving in school they might be forced to go to an industrial school then you might have 
difficult women, as you say, put into um, Magdalene laundries and you've got mother and baby homes where unmarried mothers would give birth and stay for a few years. What's your understanding of the motivation for establishing this kind of mass incarceration of different sections of society? Well, the state really abdicated its responsibility to support people. It was a way of handing it over to the church uh, when the Irish Free State was established. We had a workhouse system and a poor law before that, which was a very cruel system in itself. But, you know, where that sort of became, it progressed in the UK and became socialised, uh, we handed it over to the church. And so it was a way for the state not to have to support people. And it was an economic concern. So, you know, especially with the laundries and the mother and baby homes, there was a whole scheme put in place where if women gave, if they became pregnant twice outside of marriage, they were considered offenders. And so you had first time offenders who would sort of go through the institutions and they would attempt to marry them off or, or get them jobs. But a second time offender was seen to be a burden on the ratepayer. So it would be a burden on the taxpayer. And they were often sent to the Magdalene laundries. And so it was this concern that unmarried mothers would be a burden on the state. And so they handed them over to the religious orders where they were made to work. Uh, for free in the Magdalene laundries, um, sometimes for life. And the state was sending its laundry to these institutions to be washed. So the laundry of ministries, government ministries, things like that. Government ministries, yes, um, as well as, you know, local people as well. Uh, So it was sort of an economic model. It was, Mm. you know, a shame industrial complex, I call it in the book. The industrial schools as well. Children were made to work in these institutions. And so it was a form of exploitation. And it was, you know, efficient, I guess. And for families who uh, were very poor and and might not have had any other options, um, children were often taken away from families who were poor. But there was a generational impact. And obviously often a cycle of institutionalization. So many people who had been born in the mother baby homes might go to the industrial schools. Young women coming out of those so-called schools are often very vulnerable, might become pregnant themselves, sent to the homes, and then sometimes sent to the laundries. Mm. So you would have this cycle of institutionalization and incarceration. And I'm detecting from this that there's a class issue where this was mostly people who were poorer, and it's an alternative to maybe, or it's another way of um, dealing with people who need some sort of state support of some kind, so they might have welfare in, in, an, in another kind of system, but in this system they were institutionalized. Were there also women and children from sort of middle class uh, backgrounds who also went to do these things or was it overwhelmingly the poor? There were, uh, you know, a mix of of different classes in these institutions, but they were treated differently. I remember one mother telling me she was sent to St. Patrick's on the Navan Road, which is the biggest mother and baby home in Ireland. And they just perceived her to be posh and she was treated very differently. She wasn't made to work in the laundry. She was treated with a bit more respect. And so there was a classism within the institutions. A lot of people talk about how the religious orders, you know, if you were from the traveling community, being treated very cruelly. Um, If you were from a working class background, being treated with less respect in Mm. the institutions because of the class you were from. And also being able to afford to maybe 
buy your daughter out or to send her to a private nursing home and in secret rather than one of the public institutions mm. like Tune. Tune was a public institution funded by the local authority. So there were different experiences depending on, you know, sort of your, your economic yeah. background, which kind of challenges the idea that this was a refuge or a service, the fact that women were treated so differently. Do you have any theory about how this culture of shame, as you call it, came to be? Like, why? It's not the case everywhere. It's not a universal thing. So why was it the case that in Ireland there was this strange shame culture? I mean, I think a lot of it does originate with the church and the huge authority that the church had in Ireland. And the fact that as a sort of a, a, a young nation and starting out, we did hand over so much power to the Catholic Church. And so that idea of shame, that idea of the penitent having to reform and do penitence for their sins was at the real core of these institutions. And so that shame of having sex outside of marriage it does originate with uh, that religious moralism that was so pervasive in society and the authority that was just unquestionable at the time and that permeated just I think every section of society so when people say what about the families families didn't exist in a vacuum you know you would hear of priests sort of preaching from the pulpit about, uh, you know, a woman who'd become pregnant outside of wedlock or, you know, the priest coming to the family and saying, you need to send her off to an institution. So a huge influence on society from the church and, and the state and the church were working very close together. I came across letters from a bishop in, in Ennis who was writing to the local health authority. The, the local health authority had asked for his advice on what to do about unmarried mothers. And so there's this correspondence between them in which the bishop calls them offenders, breaks them into three class of offenders and recommends that the worst class, as he terms it, who he calls women of a wild and vicious nature, <laughs> should be uh, sent off for life to the nuns oh, and God. to an institution. So church and state. That'd be me now. <laughs> You know, it, it was to see it in black and white like that, to see women called offenders and just, you know, church and state working hand in hand to incarcerate women for the supposed crime of being pregnant outside of wedlock. And do we have good figures about what kind of percentage of the population might have been in some kind of an institution at any given moment in time? There is, you know, there there's a, some great research on that and... Um, that Owen O'Sullivan, I think, has done. And the the exact percentage escapes me right mm. now. I think it might be something like either 1% or 5%, I can't remember, okay. at a What's certain a sig- time. significant? A really significant percentage of the population was incarcerated. And not just in religious-run institutions, but also psychiatric institutions. And that was often used as a threat. Women were often made to feel that that was you know, what would happen to them if they spoke out about what was happening to them. In if the they were too unmanageable. If they were unmanageable within mm. the religious-run institutions, even within the laundries, mm. there's plenty of evidence of women being sent to um, mental asylums as sort of a punishment. And actually, Julia Devaney, who worked in the Tomb Institution, uh, I you know, went through transcripts of her tapes 
And she talks about women being sent to Balneslow and to the local asylums if, you know, if they were seen to be sort of unrepentant mm. or if they couldn't be reformed within the institution. There was a statistic that you mentioned in your book which kind of stuck out to me, which was that one in three children who were born out of wedlock in 1924 died within a year of birth. Is that a normal rate of mortality? That, and that's one out of three so-called illegitimate children. Mm. So there was a disproportionate rate of children dying who were illegitimate, who were born out of wedlock to, you know, disproportionate to the rate of children who were dying, who were so-called legitimate. So that that gap in, in you know, in, in that rate between those two shows how children who were born outside of marriage were treated differently. They, you know, they were institutionalized and, and there was a, a woman who had gone around inspecting these institutions and she actually in the in the 20s in the very first years of the system called it out called out the you know the the very high death rates and said that children were dying you know in the institutions at a higher rate than they were in you know the worst slums in Dublin the children in the slums had a better chance of surviving than in institutions funded by the state or run by religious orders the difference in those rates really show how um, so-called illegitimate children were treated with less care mm. and were dying at a much higher rate. And you mentioned as well in your book that this legal status of illegitimacy was only abolished a year before your own birth. So you narrowly avoided being officially illegitimate yourself. Yeah, I was born in 1988 and it changed in 1987. Mm. And, you know, it, realizing how recent all this was, you know, I, I met very randomly at an apartment viewing a woman who was born in 1988 in Bespra, mother and baby home in Cork. And, you know, she had only just begun to trace her mother, to try and trace her mother, and is still facing uh, a few years on a waiting list until she is, you know... Uh, with a social worker and given some help with that so people my age and younger are only beginning to search and this stigma of illegitimacy was still there even after that legal status changed you know when I was born my parents weren't married and it was still a big deal and you know and and to realize that these institutions run by nuns were still operating the year I was born uh, speaking with women who were actually sent to mother and baby homes the year I was born it really made me realize you know if my mom's situation had been slightly different that's the alternative fate it, this system was still operating for so many years even into the late 90s Vesper didn't close until 1998 so a full decade after I was born. And in terms of that legal status, it means if you were not born to married parents, you you had difficulties with inheritance, I understand. What, what other kind of distinction did you have in terms of rights? You didn't have, you know, the, you didn't have any legal relationship with your father. I mean, it did change over the 70s and the 80s. There were, mm. you know, different changes introduced in law. But, you know, it, it didn't give you that, that yeah, that ultimate right um, to a relationship with your father. Uh, but also, so only illegitimate children uh, could be adopted, orphaned or so-called illegitimate children. Uh, so since the 1950s, when adoption became legalized in Ireland, 
And that was sort of the emphasis. It was about children born outside of marriage being adopted. It was considered appropriate that they ought to be. Yes. And at one point in the 1960s, 97% of children born outside of marriage were adopted. So I think that shows how strong the stigma was Mm. and that women just felt that they could be mothers if they weren't married. And they were told this in the institutions. And I think that was... It was very shocking because you think of, you know, and I think there were women who were forced and who were coerced into giving um, their children up at that term, you know, or having their children taken for adoption. But there were more subtle forms of coercion. And one of those was women being told, you can't be a mother. You know, you wouldn't be giving your child the future your child deserves. You're not fit. You're not fit to be a mother, you know, and and you'd be doing this great service if you give your child up to a married couple who could give your child everything. And, you know, a mother who loves her child wants to give her child the best future. And so that, that manipulation that went on, I think, was very very harmful to women. Was there a story that stuck out to you during your reporting that kind of illustrates this history that Ireland is dealing with and not current day reality as well? Um, So one of the women whose story, you know, really stays with me is Anna Gorman, whose daughter was born in Basborough in the 1970s and who died very shortly after birth. And Anne is still searching for where her daughter Evelyn is buried so 900 children died in Bessborough. I think everyone is very aware of Chum, but it's so much wider than Chum. You know, um, 900 children died in Bessborough, 1,000 children died in Sean Ross Abbey. And there are many people like Anne still searching for where these children are buried. The Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes went through all the records they could find and they could only ascertain the burial place of 64 children out of 900. So, you know, there are mothers still searching for where their own children are buried. And, you know, Anne, um, she had a very difficult experience in the institution. She, her name was changed uh, to Una. When we looked at her records, she was given a, a house name, but also a number, you know, as if she was a prisoner made to work very hard and then you know this issue of just not being told where her own daughter was buried and she actually has an empty grave plot in you know near to where she lives where she visits and all she wants is to know when she goes into that grave that her daughter will be there with her so it's it's impossible you can imagine you know um it's impossible to have any peace until you know where your child mm. is laid to rest but also you know, younger people still searching um, for their own information, information about their own identity and the denial of that information still. So mm. records being redacted, you know, no right to your own birth, your original birth certificate. So the name your mother gave you at birth. And so mothers and, you know, people born in these institutions still searching for answers. We've had a good few people contact us actually at the podcast who've been adopted and who were born in Ireland, often adopted over in the UK or something like that. And they're kind of interested in Irish history and learning about Ireland because they understand that this is where they came from. And we've been asked as well to kind of talk a little bit more about what's the situation of tracing your family if you were someone who was adopted abroad. What's the situation for people now? 
So the government has the, the Child and Family Agency Tuslo, which has a tracing and information service. But like I said, there's a very long waiting list. So some people are facing three years on a wait list. Um, and you can imagine how difficult that is with parents who might be aging and worrying about, you know, and parents, mothers have passed away while people are searching. So they can apply through that. Uh, there's also freedom of, of information to request your own records. But as I said, a lot of people are finding that those records are very heavily uh, redacted, even to the stage where, you know, they're adoptive parents' names are being redacted. So information they already have and have a legal right to is being redacted. And Why is that? Is there this institutional inclination to towards secrecy to, and, and to protect the uh, original birth parents or what's going on? There, you know, constitutionally, um, there's a lot of emphasis on the right to privacy. So there's this conflict between the right to privacy and the right to identity. And the state says it needs to protect the mother's uh, right to privacy. Now, every mother I've talked to has, you know, um, wanted to search for their child, but some women are still afraid um, or, you know, there, there are times when people reach out and their mothers don't want to contact. They might have a, a family that they've never told, they've never spoken about this. So many women have, have kept the, you know, their silence about their experience for so many years. And so um, there is this conflict of rights yeah. um, constitutionally. And there is legislation that's being introduced to try and change that, but it still doesn't give uh, people are adopted a constitutional right or a statutory right mm. to their birth information. So it's it's still not um, giving them that clear access, yeah. which is, is very, you know, in, in the UK, it's been normal for years for people once they turn 18 to have that access uh, in, in the North as well. So, you know, as people like to say, the sky hasn't fallen just because people have that access and people aren't going and knocking on doors. It's a right to information. But the tracing service, there are a lot of issues with it. And I, I think it's interesting that a lot of people say that actually the nuns tended to give sometimes more information than the Irish state is now giving. Mm. So it's perpetuating that culture of secrecy and a sense of stigma. Something for me kind of illustrates how current day um, this whole issue is, is the fact that Sinead O'Connor, the famous singer, was institutionalised in Ongrianon when she was yeah. a teenager and was introduced to the guitar there by a nun, which she credits to her you know, start in music. You wanted to maybe talk about the castle, which is perhaps a lesser known institution that persisted right up until the Celtic Tiger era. Yes, um, I couldn't find anything about the castle. It's on the list of the commission's sort of uh, investigation, one of the institutions they are covering. And I looked online and I knew that it was in this small town in Donegal called Newtown Cunningham. Uh, so I went there one day and I, you know, it's a big boarded up stately building just off the main road in a very small town. And I went to the local pub and actually the woman who worked there remembered some of the women coming in and having minerals and sort of chatting after most people had gone home. 
Um, and, you know, she talked about them sending letters home and pretending to be working in Belfast or somewhere else, but actually they were there to give birth in secret. So this was a mother and baby home? This was a mother and baby home. And, you know, the woman actually, the pub couldn't really remember how long it operated, but I ended up speaking to the woman who worked as a house parent there and who ran the place. And I sat down with her and she told me it only opened in the 1980s. And this was a real shock because it was one thing for the institutions to stay open until the late 90s, but for one to only open in the 1980s was a real surprise. And then she told me it stayed open until 2006. And I was 17 in 2006. I could have been sent to a place like this. So I I did a freedom of information request to try and get records on it. And you know, what came from those records, there was actually a diary that was kept by the person running it. And you could see that this was very closely linked with uh, Catholic crisis pregnancy agencies, pro-life Catholic crisis pregnancy agencies, uh, like LIFE, which was actually set up by, in, in part by a priest, who's now a bishop, and Cora, which was set up by the Catholic bishops. So these agencies were referring women to the castle um, in the 80s, 90s and well into the 2000s. So women would go there, the very same setup, you know, they would go in secret and, you know, some would keep their babies, some would have their babies adopted. But, you know, the woman who ran it told me a story of one woman who took her baby home uh, and the local priest wouldn't baptize the baby because uh, she had her, her child out of wedlock. So she actually had to come back to Newtown Cunningham and have the baby baptised there. And the record showed another really interesting thing was that it closed because of the state that the building was in. So there was a hole in the roof and it was in a real state of disrepair. And so the money it would have cost to refurb, to get up to a, a safe standard, was more than people were willing to pay. Because the government was, you know, the state was running this. It was set up by a cross-border initiative by the Diocese of Rafaux and of Derry. So women would actually come from the north as well. You know, we've, we've heard a lot about women going to the UK to access terminations, but I'd never heard of women coming from the UK, you know, to give birth in secret in, in this small town. So this institution actually closed because of the state of disrepair. And it was a really strong parallel with Tume because Tume actually closed in 61, not because people thought this is a terrible institution and we need to change, but because of the cost of bringing it up to a safe standard. And so in the documents, you can see that they're saying, well, maybe it can be run somewhere else by these agencies or handed over to these agencies. So in 2006, Mm. there were still people, you know, that felt so much stigma that they had to leave home in secret and go to an institution and write letters home pretending to be somewhere else. And um, there were still women feeling like they couldn't keep their children just because they weren't married mm. up until that time. And of course, to bring it into the present now, post-repeal campaign, we still have an issue now with Catholic ethos crisis pregnancy agencies that sometimes give inf- misinformation to women uh, that try to uh, persuade them not to have terminations and push them towards adop- the adoption model. Is it actually the same people? 
Well, one of the um, one of the crisis pregnancy agencies that referred women to the castle was called Life, and they're now actually called anew. Um, Bishop Kevin Doran, who was involved in setting that up, told me that very proudly that they still operate as anew. And yes, there there is still a, a real issue with these pro-life crisis pregnancy agencies and um, trying to influence the choices of women. Um, and it's interesting, I was in Belfast uh, just before, you know, we had these changes come in around the abortion ban, but uh, there was a woman I met whose father was born in a mother and baby home, and that had really influenced her activism and, and the importance she saw about women having a choice around, you know, um, pregnancy and not being forced to give birth. And I also met an activist there who'd worked in Derry and she remembered women being sent to these institutions and sent across the border to give birth. So there's a very long history of um, these kind of agencies, you know, closely linked with the Catholic Church, trying to influence women's choices. Mm. And the castle was set up because in the 1980s, more women were mm. travelling for abortions. And this was a way to sort of prevent that in some ways and so you know I talked with Kevin Doran the the bishop um that I mentioned about uh, a priest who had suggested during the repeal referendum that mother and baby homes be brought back as an alternative to abortion and he said you know well they'd have to be you know a little bit better or you know more modern that was sort of the gist of what he told me but the fact that he would even entertain the idea of mother and baby homes being brought back I think shows a complete lack of understanding of the pain that these institutions caused and continue to cause so many people uh, you know mothers being forcibly separated from their children the stigma that these institutions perpetuated uh, so there just seems to be a complete lack of understanding of the impact this had on women. Mm. And there was a very interesting interview I did with a man who, um, when he was reunited with his mother, uh, she told him how she used to keep a room in her house for any woman who was in crisis so that they wouldn't have to go to the institutions. But also spoke to him about, you know, um, reproductive rights and, and the fact that the pain of being separated from your child was lifelong, you know, and giving women a choice, you know, was a really important thing. Um, and he understood that. And I think it's a difficult conversation for people, you know, who are adopted sometimes because there's an idea, well, you know, I might not have been born, but, uh, you know, there is an understanding there, I think. And I think that the legacy of these institutions and the way we treated pregnant women was a real catalyst for change in this country. It's interesting to hear you say that not only is, um, I suppose, the pro-mother and baby home side kind of the same people, but also m many of the activists on the ro uh, pro-repeal and pro-abortion access side come from a history of activism against uh, mother and baby homes, or at least coming from, from reacting against that culture. Well, what do you think is would be kind of constructive steps forward now for the state. I sense now from the book that you have the impression that this is a history and the current day reality that isn't being adequately acknowledged or dealt with. What would be your recommendations for doing that? Well, I think access to information is one of the most important things. Um, so 
giving people the right to their birth information. I think would not is it's not only crucial that people have a right to their identity, but I think it would lift some of the stigma that's still around these issues, you know, the the lack of equality. So that's a really important issue and it's an issue that is very current because there is legislation that's you know trying to be passed in our names uh, that would affect people who um, whose lives have been impacted by these institutions. There's also an attempt to seal records of the Commission um, of Inquiry into Child Abuse for 75 years. Uh, and that's a real concern to survivors as well. Survivors who went through a very difficult time giving their testimony, revisiting very traumatic experiences to document this history, to provide evidence. And now the state is trying to seal that evidence for generations. And why would the, what would be the motivation for that? They say it's an issue of privacy again, of, of, of you know, protecting the privacy of people who gave um, evidence. You know, I think some people might not want, you know, their, their sort of testimonies public, but it's not about, you know, the names wouldn't necessarily be made public, but access to this information, not sealing it for 75 years so that survivors themselves don't have access to their own testimony, to their own evidence. It's a really, really big issue at the moment. And that, that legislation is also being discussed. It was, you know, it was due to go through the doll, um, but it has been delayed. But it's still, it has not been rejected. It's still a really urgent issue. And, you know, survivors that gave evidence for that have also been, you know, when they, if they received redress, there was a whole issue with gag orders and the idea that they couldn't speak about their own stories if they received redress. So, you know, again, a, a silencing of, of these stories and of this history and um, that I think is really important that we are transparent about, that we listen to the voices of people who experience these institutions and that we don't try and, and seal off or silence this part of our history, that we acknowledge it and that we acknowledge that this is still impacting lives and that there's still things we need to do to make sure that um, you know, people impacted by these institutions can get their information and you know, can, can start to heal. I don't think there's healing until there's justice. So yeah, information is really key. Kaylin Hogan, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all from this edition of Half Points, the bonus content of the Irish Passport podcast we make specially to thank our Patreon supporters. Don't forget to share this episode on social media to win a copy of Republic of Shame. Just tag the Irish Passport so we know to put your name in the draw. There's a whole series of half pints up on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. So don't forget to check them out if you haven't already. Thanks so much for listening. Slán for now.